2 Kings chapter 5, I told you at the beginning of this series that we were going to go slow at the beginning and then we were going to start kind of flying through the Bible. And we took, you know, a couple months to get through Exodus and now we're, we're really starting to fly. What we're looking at today in 2 Kings is a story several hundred years past what we looked at last week with the, the sin of David and Bathsheba. And 2 Kings is like judges. It's a very dark time in the nation of Israel. Historically speaking, this is one of their darkest series, seasons that they've had to go on through. Now, a lot has changed since last week's story we looked at with David and Bathsheba. A lot has changed in the nation. Now, of course, David had sinned with Bathsheba and she had gotten pregnant and he tried to cover it up and it ends up killing Uriah and he thinks he gets away with it. But a year later, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him, says, God says what you did and it displeased the Lord and you know, passed judgment on David, got forgiveness. He sought forgiveness and received it, but he still had consequences for his sin. The son that he had with Bathsheba dies, but Bathsheba and David have another son named Solomon. And that's about the high point of David's life after his sin, because after that, it, it goes pretty bad. One of his sons named Amnon rapes his half-sister named Tamar, and David doesn't do anything about it, which infuriates Absalom, Tamar's brother, and, you know, another one of David's children. And so Absalom... He bides his time, but he plots and he kills Amnon for what he did to his sister Tamar. Now, I, I agree with Absalom. Amnon needed to die. But David is upset. He banishes Absalom from the nation of Israel. And so Absalom is, is out of the country, out of the nation of Israel for about 10 years before David finds him and brings him back and allows him to come back. But as soon as Absalom gets back he starts plotting to overthrow his father. And he gets a lot of, takes years, but he gets a lot of supporters and he finally raises up an army and attacks David at Jerusalem. And David has to flee Jerusalem so he's not killed by his own son. And as he's gone from Jerusalem, Absalom uh, is killed in battle and David's able to return um, back to Jerusalem. But after a while, David grows old and he's got a few sons left and Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and says to anoint Solomon as the king, not his oldest living son, Adonai. Now, Adonai, of course, is very upset about this. He tries to take control. He's killed uh, by the Israelite army when he tries to take control. And when David dies, Solomon takes the throne and Solomon begins to reign as king. And he starts off great. He builds the temple that David had wanted to build for God, but couldn't because his hands were too bloody. So he builds the temple, but he doesn't just build a temple. He has these massive building projects, wonderful gardens and pools. And he brings Israel into their golden age. He gets more wealth for them than, than they could ever imagine. He uh, gets all kinds of power and just, just does a wonderful job, brings peace to the land. And so David, Solomon starts off as a wonderful king, but it doesn't end well. He marries hundreds of foreign women. Most of them were political. 
Now he had, you know, 600 wives and 300 concubines. 300, 600 mother-in-laws is a bad idea. But, I mean, honestly, he, he, didn't, he didn't live with 600 women and, you know, 300, he, he, you know, 300 concubines were a different story. But the 600 wives, most of them were political. He would marry them. They would move to Israel and he'd put them in a house somewhere. It's not like he, you know, every night he's at a different place for 900 nights. It's just most of them were political. He didn't spend a lot of time with them. But he allowed them to bring their false gods to Israel. And eventually he starts worshiping these false gods. And eventually he leads the nation of Israel to worship these false gods. So he ends his reign very badly. And when he dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. Now Solomon in his life, he of course accumulated a great deal of wealth uh, for, for the nation of Israel and for himself. He had these incredible building projects but it cost the nation dearly because he instituted very heavy taxes to pay for all these things. He would actually even enslave some people for a certain amount of time to make them do the work. And so when he dies, yes, the nation's in a great position politically. It's in a great position financially. But the people have been pretty much beaten down by Solomon for a while and they're looking for some reprieve. And Rehoboam takes over. And he is told by Solomon's advisor, say, look, your dad was a tough king. He had a lot of restrictions, a lot of taxes. You need to back off some of those things. You need to ease restrictions, let people have some more, uh, have some more of their money back in their pockets, be a little bit more gentler with them, kind of, you know, help them, you know, get better position. But then some of Rehoboam's uh, people say, you know what, tell them, no, you're going to make it even worse for them. So he does. He doubles down on what Solomon did, increases taxes, increases how he's forcing people to work for him, and it, it causes a split. And the nation of Israel divides into two different nations. There's the northern kingdom, which consists of ten of the tribes of Israel, and their, their capital is in Samaria. And then there's the, to the southern kingdom called Judah, which is just Benjamin and Levi, these two tribes, and their, their capital is Jerusalem. So a civil war takes over and the nation of Israel splits. And the Bible, after the split, they start, it starts to focus mostly on the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and they are kings. The history of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, they had 20 kings and every single one of them was wicked. None of them followed God. The southern kingdom wasn't much better. They had 20 kings. They had about eight that God said, these are pretty good guys. They love the Lord. They follow it like, like David did. But the northern kingdom was a mess. 20 kings, everyone worse than the one before. And it's, it's during this time where the kingdom is divided and you've got the northern kingdom with wicked king after wicked king after wicked king and Judah and the southern kingdom with wicked king, wicked king, good king, wicked king. You know, whether they're just, it's a terrible time. God raises up the prophets. The prophets were almost like the judges, but they, they weren't military leaders. They weren't high priests. They were men that God had chosen to speak through 
to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. They were the spokesmen of God. They had the job of watching Israel and Judah. And when they saw sin in the nation, it was their job to call out that sin, to point out that sin and try to bring the nation back to God. And in the southern kingdom, it, it worked pretty well. But in the northern kingdom, with wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, a lot of prophets made a lot of enemies. The most, two most famous prophets were Elijah and Elisha. Both of these prophets were in the northern kingdom under wicked kings. And of course, the king they were under the most, which was the most wicked king in the history of the nation of Israel, was Ahab. Uh, Ahab. He's married to a Canaanite woman named, who knows her name? Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. You know, no one ever names her daughter Jezebel anymore. They do Delilah, which is weird because she wasn't much better. But anyway, so it's Ahab and Jezebel, and they, they are the worst of the northern kings. Jezebel brings in all her prophets of Baal. She kills the prophets of God, destroys the temples that have been made to God and builds up these temples to Baal. And it's just a terrible time. And here comes Elijah, the prophet of God who stands against them. And of course, we know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel where he, he, knew he calls down fire from heaven and kills 450 prophets of Baal and then runs, has to run to the wilderness to hide. And so just some great miracles that Elijah does. But eventually, Elijah passes over the mantle to, to be the prophet of God to Elisha. So Elijah gives the job to Elisha and then he is carried to heaven in, in chariots and Elisha now is facing Ahab. Well, not long after that, Ahab dies, Jezebel dies, and one of his sons takes the throne, but he is killed by his brother Joram, and he is another king that is a wicked king that is ruling the northern kingdom, and that's where we are. So we've caught up to where we're at right now. A lot has happened. The nation of Israel is vastly different than it was when David was king. They're divided in two. There's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. Their wickedness and wicked kings and just turmoil. And Samaria's coming in and, and conquering. And it's, it's judgment of God. And it's a bad time for the nation of Israel. So <clears throat> the story that we're going to look at this morning shows two people who are suffering. One person is a believer. They're a child of God. The other person is not. Now the unbeliever comes down with a terminal illness and the believer is caught up and is traded into human trafficking after watching her entire family be murdered. And God takes these two different people and these two different stories and these two different problems and he weaves them together to show us a beautiful picture of how God works in the world today. You know, every one of us have had situations in our life that we don't understand. Problems we face where we don't know what God is doing. Or why God is doing something. Why did God 
allow me to lose this job? Why did God allow this heartbreak in my life? Why did God send sickness to me? Why did God take away my loved one? And we just, we don't know what God is doing in our lives. We may have situations that make us doubt if there ever even is a God. And if there is, does he really love us at all? We've, we've all faced situations like that. And this story, this story shows us that even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when we don't understand what is happening, God is still at work in our lives. God is still at work in our pain. How many of y'all remember the, the show on PBS, The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross? I love Bob Ross. Did you know that he was the number one, because Netflix had his stuff on there for a while. He was the number one Netflix show for like two years. Not because people watched him. People would turn it on and go to sleep to him. Because they loved just hearing, happy little tree, happy little tree. But when you watch Bob Ross paint, when he starts off, it, it doesn't look like much. It's kind of blobs of paint here and there. And he's kind of talking. And I love how he talks. Put a happy little tree over here. Oh, look at a little cloud there. But after a while, you see this, this, this beautiful landscape come out. And you remember what Bob Ross said if you, if you made a mistake and put paint in the wrong place? Remember what he said? There's no mistakes, just happy accidents. Yeah, Marie, good job. So you, you mess up and put a blob. That's not a mistake. That's a happy accident. This blob will come a beautiful mountain or a, a sunset or something. And so he, he would always take, have this beautiful picture, but we didn't know what it was going to look like until he was almost done. See, that's how God works. That's what God is doing in this story. He is painting a beautiful picture that doesn't look like much until he's finished. We see these things in this story that seem accidental, seem like mistakes, seem like coincidences, but they're God working this story out for his glory and for the people's good. After a few strokes, they transform into a beautiful picture. So let's start reading in Matthew, and not Matthew, in 2 Kings chapter 5, starting verse number 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, an honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now, right off the bat, we're introduced to, to Naaman. A few things I noticed about Naaman. He is a man with a lot of power and a lot of influence in the land. He is the commander of the Syrian army. The Syrian army is Israel's enemy. But I want you to look at that verse again. Uh, now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, honorable, because by him, by Naaman, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Deliverance over who? Deliverance over Israel. God has used this man to send judgment to Israel. So he has been used by God. He's a great general. He's in charge of the Syrian army, and God has used him to punish Israel 
for their idolatry. He is a feared man. Israel's scared of him. People in Syria are scared of him. He is a great and powerful man, but he's a leper. And that's a big deal. Now, leprosy can be treated and even cured. If they catch it early enough, they can treat it and they can cure it. But in this time, leprosy was a dissonance. It was the most feared disease in the world. It would begin as kind of a, a small white patch somewhere on your skin that you would kind of itch and kind of scratch a little bit. And now you're getting itchy. I saw you scratching. Yeah, now you're like, oh, God, leprosy. Oh, Lord. It would start as a small white spot, but soon it would spread all over your body. And as it spread, it would kill the nerve endings in your body. Then you would break out in boils. Then those boils would rupture and leave raw, gaping wounds that would become infected and pus-filled and nasty. Eventually, your body parts would begin to fall off. Your face would become grotesquely deformed. And you would eventually die a very slow, very painful, very lonely death. Because as soon as you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were cast out of society. They thought it was highly contagious. So if you contracted leprosy, you couldn't go around anyone ever again. And so it was a very long, very painful, very lonely death. And Naaman, this mighty warrior, this powerful general, this man who's been used by God to bring judgment to Israel, he finds a little spot. That little spot begins to spread and he knows it's a death sentence. He has no hope. But look what the Bible says, continuing in verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So now we are introduced to the second person in the story. This little girl, she is serving Naaman's wife, but not because she wants to, because Naaman had gone into Israel on a raid to conquer a city or a town. And when the Syrians conquered a town, they didn't just come in and beat everybody up and take what they wanted and leave. They wiped out the city. They killed everyone. Men, women, children, didn't matter. Everyone died. They burned the city to the ground and the only people they kept alive were people they took into slavery. So this little girl, she's about 14, what a lot of theologians believe, but this little girl is serving Naaman, who she knows had her entire family murdered. She watched them die. She watched her friends die. She watched her city get burned to the ground. And now she's serving the monster that did that to her. Look what it says in verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, Naaman's wife, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Syria, uh, that is in Samaria, for he would recover him 
of his leprosy. So this little slave girl, she's talking about Elisha. She's saying, man, if Naaman could just get to Elisha, he would heal him. He'd be cured. Now, I know about you, but if I'm a slave and I watched my family get murdered and my house get burned down and I'm serving the guy who did that and I found out he's got a, a terminal disease that's going to make him have to leave the house forever and never come around, I'm not like, oh, let's find him a cure. I'm like, woohoo! You get what you get, buddy. But this girl's like, oh, no, he needs to get to, to Elisha. The prophet Elisha can cure him. Let's look at verse number four. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is in the land of Israel. And the kings of Syria, and the king of Syria said, Go to, go. I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. Now, this is an incredible amount of money. In today's market, he is sending Naaman to the king of Israel to find Elisha. He is sending him with $4.3 million. It's a lot of money. In any days, that's a lot of money. And he, he doesn't just send him with $4.3 million of gold and silver. He sends 10 changes of clothes, which seems a little weird. Like, all right, you're sending me $4.3 million. What do I need with 10 changes of clothes? These weren't just like, you know, play clothes. These were party clothes. They were expensive. They were handmade. They were fancy. Most people didn't have one set of these clothes, and he's sending 10 of them to the king of Israel. And so he is, he is sending him with an incredible amount of money and treasures to the king of, of Israel to say, hey, we need to find this prophet Elisha to cure us. Look what he says in verse 6. <clears throat> and he brought the, king, the letter to the king of Israel, saying... Now when this letter has come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. So Joram, he gets the letter, he sees the money, he's unexcited. He's like, all right, the king of Syria sent me all this money and these clothes, but he says, I have to cure Naaman of leprosy, and I can't do that. So he thinks the king of Syria is just looking for an excuse to start a war because he can't heal Naaman. But look what verse number eight says. And, so it, was, and it was so, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha says, man, why are, you, why are you ripping your clothes? Just send him down here. I'll take care of him. I'll, I'll do what needs to be done. And so Elisha saw a greater purpose in this leprosy than just curing Naaman and keeping peace. Because remember he says, send him down here, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. He will know that there is a one true God because of what I'm going to do. <coughs> Look at verse number nine. <clears throat> so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. So imagine this scene now. Everyone knows who Naaman is. He's a great warrior. He's a Syrian general. 
He is driving through the countryside of Israel with his chariots and his horses and his army. So you are just a regular Israelite farmer. You're out plowing your field or hoeing your field and you see Naaman ride by with his chariots and his horses. And you're thinking, oh man, they're coming to invade us again. And they come to the house of Elisha. The prophet of God, who doesn't live in a big house in a big place. You know, it's not like he's got a mansion. It's a little, little shack. So he comes to Elisha. Look what happens in verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Naaman, the general of the Syrian army, the conqueror of Israel, knocks on Elisha's door. And Elisha doesn't even get up. He tells his servant, hey, just go tell him to jump in the Jordan seven times. He'll be fine. Can you imagine me and that servant? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Naaman, but, you know, Dr. Elisha's a little busy right now. He can't come to the, to the door. But he said, just go jump in the, in the Jordan seven times. He'll be fine. You know, shuts the door. So Elisha doesn't even get up to talk to this great and powerful man. Elisha, at this time, is a relatively unknown prophet. And he is snubbing the general of the Syrian army. Why? What is God trying to do here? Look at verse number 11. But Naaman was wroth. In the Hebrew, that means really, really, really mad. It literally means rage-like. Naaman is furious that this prophet wouldn't even come talk to him. He sends his stinking servant to give me directions. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abina and Farbar rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. Now, I know I said the word wroth means rage. The word rage here doesn't mean rage. It, it, in the Hebrew, it's kind of hard to translate in English. It literally means like looking for a fight. So he is mad. And he's like, all right, that's it. We're going we're gonna to go do something about this. We're going to you know, just tear up some stuff because that's what we want to do. So he is throwing a fit here. And he's, he's angry because, look, he's heard about Elijah and how Elijah had the 40, 150 prophets of Baal and he called down fire from heaven. And he thinks, man, there's going to be some great scene here. He's going to come out and say some chant and the, the clouds are going to come over and there's going to be thunder and lightning and maybe a light from heaven is going to hit me and whoo, I'll be healed. This is going to be great. But that's not what he says. He says, go jump in the Jordan seven times. And the Jordan is a filthy river. It is muddy. It is stinky. It's kind of stagnant. So he goes, go jump in that muddy, nasty river seven times and you'll be clean. He's like, there are better rivers in, in, at home. I'll just go jump in them. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. Look what happens in verse number 13. And the servants came near and said, and spake unto him and said, my father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. He says, look, if he had told you to go clip the, thing, the toenails off of a dragon, you'd have done it. If he had told you to climb the highest mountain for some, some goat berries, you'd have done it. All he's saying is jump in the river and you'll be clean. Why not give it a try? Look at verse 14. 
Then he went down, then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like into the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman, he gives it a try, dips himself in the nasty Jordan River seven times. And, you know, the first six times, nothing happens. But when he comes up that seventh time, his skin is brand new, like skin of a baby. Look what happens in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God and all his company and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now there I, for I pray thee, take a blessing of that servant. Now, remember, this is the first time he's met Elisha. He goes back to Elisha's house and this time Elisha gets up and goes to talk to him. And so the first thing that he says to Elisha, Elisha just saved his life. Elisha just cured him of an incurable disease. But the first thing he doesn't say is, you saved my life. How can I ever thank you? He doesn't even mention the leprosy. He never mentions the disease. He talks about God. He didn't come looking for God. He came looking for a cure but God showed him himself in that cure. But God used his search for a cure to lead him to something even greater. Something even more needed than a cure for leprosy. He used his disease to bring him to a relationship with God. So what does this story show us about God and how he works in the world? Number one, it shows us God uses your pain to bring you to him. God had a much bigger purpose for Naaman's pain than he could ever imagine. God has a much greater purpose for your pain than you could ever think of. Until Naaman found that little spot, he was on top of the world. He was the king's right-hand man. He was highly regarded. Everybody feared him. But all that was taken away when he found out he had leprosy. That spot made him realize how fragile he really was. So what if that is what God is trying to tell you in your pain? What if the problem that you're facing was put there by God to wake you up to your need for him? Maybe for salvation, maybe you're a child of God and you're still suffering pain because God's trying to show you, hey, you don't need all this other stuff we spend our time chasing and pursuing and trying to get satisfaction in. All we need is God. Your pain has something for you beyond and better than a cure for your pain. God has a closer, closer relationship with him through your pain. God wants us to come to him, not to the cure for our pain, but God wants us to come to him so we can be with him. And that's better than any cure we could ask for. See, God sends pain to show you that you need him. Those spots we have in our life, they point us to a bigger problem in our life, and that's the problem of sin. See, in the Bible, leprosy 
is a symbol of sin. Like leprosy, sin numbs you. If sin is left unconfessed and unforgiven and unrepented of, eventually you become numb to that sin. See, God talks in the New Testament about a group of believers who have their conscience seared. See, what's that mean? It's mean they have sinned against God so much and ignored the Holy Spirit so much and just ran from God for so long that now sin doesn't bother them. Now, we all know people like that, people who were, maybe they were faithful in church, they sung the songs, they taught the classes, they did everything right, but eventually, you know, several years later, we run into them and their life is just, they're away from God, they're away from church, they're doing things they never would have done before. Why? Because they weren't really saved? No, maybe they are. They just have gotten so far from God that they're numb to sin. It doesn't bother them anymore. That's a dangerous place to be, especially for a child of God. But sin will numb you like leprosy does. Just like leprosy, it will grow and destroy you more and more. You begin to lose your feeling. You begin to lose your conscience. You lose your joy. You lose your compassion. You lose your innocence. Your soul has a disease and it's terminal. And the only cure is found in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection give us the cure for our sin and its penalty. And his love gives forgiveness for our sins. So if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Christ as your savior. Look, you have a disease that is going to send you to hell. And the only cure is Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin. And all you got to do is accept it. And Jesus will cure you of your sin. But hey, Maybe you're here and you're like me, you're saved, but you still have that disease of sin. That we call it that bad habit. It's not a bad habit. It's a sin. It's the holy, righteous God. And that sin, it won't send you to hell because you're saved, but it'll destroy your relationship with God. It'll destroy your family. It'll ruin your testimony. It will wreck your life and the only cure is found in Jesus Christ asking him to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, God is using your pain to bring you to him for forgiveness, to bring you to him for cleansing, to bring you to him for the cure for your soul. This story, it shows us how God pursues Sinners. Let's look at the end of the story of right here. Look at verse number 15. <clears throat> and he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So, Naaman comes back. Now, remember, Naaman came to Israel with $4.3 million. He still has it. He's just been cured of leprosy. He goes to Elisha, says, thank you for showing me God. Here, take this as a thank you. Take what? Take $4.3 million. And Elisha says, now nah, I'm good. Elisha is not a Baptist. 
We know that. We know that for sure. If he was, he'd have said, sure, here's your tax write-off. But he says, no, I can't do that. Now, he, doesn't, he does this for a purpose. He doesn't want people thinking that Naaman purchased his healing. Because if he takes the money, even if he, know, he knows the truth, Naaman knows the truth, but people could say, well, yeah, he healed Naaman, but Naaman, Naaman gave him some money. So he didn't want people to think that Naaman had purchased his salvation or purchased his cure, so he refused it. Look what happens in verse 17. And Naaman said, shall there, not, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of earth, for thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. So Naaman says, take $4.3 million. No, I can't. Okay, give me some dirt. And he asked for the dirt because he goes, I'm not going to offer any more sacrifice to false gods. When I offer a sacrifice or an offering, I want to do it over the, the land of Israel. Look what happens in verse 18. In this thing, so he's already, he, he just said, give me some dirt. I'm not going to sacrifice to any other false gods. I'm only going to sacrifice to the God of Israel. When I do it, I'm going to do it over Israeli land. Verse 18, in this thing, the Lord pardon our servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Remnon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Remnon, when I bow myself down in the house of Remnon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. So he's just said, I'm not going to worship any other false gods. I'm going to serve only God. I'm going to worship only God. I'm going to sacrifice to only God. But when my boss makes me go to the false god temple and makes me worship the false god, you know, can you, can you forgive me for that? I'm not going to worship any false gods, but when I do, I really don't mean it. Please forgive me. Now, Elisha, he's, he's, a, he's a prophet. He's, he's the prophet that a bunch of kids called him Baldy, and he made she-bears eat him. They called, hey, look at the bald guy. And he had she-bears eat the kids for calling him bald. So you think this guy's going to go, you coward. Look what he says, verse 18. Uh, verse 19, and he said unto him, go in peace. Sure thing. Do what you got to do. That's, to me, kind of a cop-out. But here's, here's what it's teaching us. He, he is coming, Naaman, his, his obedience, it's not perfect, but it's a start. He's starting somewhere. See, when we come to God for salvation, God doesn't expect us to come perfectly because we're not perfect. We have baggage. We have a past. We have things we have to deal with. But Naaman is, is coming to God in imperfect obedience, but it's a start. He's coming to God humbly and in faith. And that's what's needed for salvation. So God uses your pain to bring it to him. Here's the second thing we want to look at real quick. God uses your pain to bring others to him. So we're going to stop looking at Naaman's pain. And we're going to look at the pain of this little girl that told him about Elisha in the first place. And we don't even know her name. But she is a true hero of the story. She is a slave, 
Because again, when Naaman and Syria invaded Israel, they took her captive. They murdered her family, murdered everybody in her neighborhood and her friends, burned her city to the ground and took her as a slave. That means she watched her entire family die, watched her home get burned before she was taken captive by the man who did it. And she is forced to serve in his house knowing that he's the one responsible for the death of her family. He's the one responsible for the death of her future. He's the one responsible for the death of her dreams. And then he gets sick. And he is going to die a slow, painful, lonely death. Now, as I said, I would have been happy. I'd have been like, you, you reap what you sow. You had this coming. But she's not. That's not how she responded. Again, look at verse number three. <clears throat> and she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. She seems to genuinely care about Naaman. She has forgiven him. She's forgiven him for killing her parents, killing her siblings, killing her friends, burning her house down, taking her as a slave, making her serve him. She's forgiven him. She has the faith to let God be the judge, and she shows compassion. This sweet 14-year-old girl who is suffering incredibly, gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus. She's suffering, but it's not because of her sin. It's because of Naaman's sin. Her suffering is because of Naaman's sin, but she forgives him. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? He wasn't hanging there for, our, for his sins. He was hanging there for our sins. He was hanging there for the sins of the people who had beaten him and spit on him and ripped his beard out and cursed and mocked him. And as he's hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them. There, I'm hurting because of them. But God, I forgive them. That's what this little girl did. Her suffering became the means of Naaman's salvation. Had she not been enslaved, Naaman never would have heard of Elisha. Her suffering that he caused became the means of his salvation. Our salvation comes through a suffering servant. Jesus suffered for our sins, not his own. Instead of hating us for causing his pain, he forgives us and loves us. His suffering became the means of our salvation. We can have our sins forgiven through his suffering. See, we killed him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His punishment brought us peace with God. Through his stripes, we are healed. Now, that's great news for every one of us today, but especially those who haven't been saved. If you're still dead 
in your trespasses and sins. Know that Jesus suffered and died and rose again to bring you healing. Just like Naaman, all you need to do is obey and accept his gift of salvation. But it means something for us believers too. Like this little girl, like Jesus, God can use our pain to bring others to him. God wants to use your pain to bring others to him. Here's a hard truth. Your suffering is the God-ordained way to bring other people to Christ. We don't like to suffer, but if we have to suffer, I'm glad something as incredible as someone's eternal soul being saved can come out of it. Look what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. He says, I, Paul, made a minister which now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. See, Paul says, look, I will gladly suffer and be punished and, and go through pain if it means someone else will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the best examples of this is the, the story of the missionary Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, in 1956, he and four other missionaries, they went to Ecuador to bring the gospel to a people, a tribe who had never heard the gospel. As soon as their plane landed and they got out of their plane, they were attacked and every single one of them were killed. In 1958, two years later, his wife, Elizabeth, went to the tribe that killed her husband. And she dedicated her life to witnessing to them and seeing them come to, to know Christ as their Savior. And by the time she was done, she spent five years, by the time she was done, the entire tribe had heard the gospel and accepted Christ. Even the one, the man who he knew what he told her, I'm the one who killed your husband. I'm the one who speared him to death. And he was just blown away by her love for him, the guy who killed her husband, that she would come and still witness to him. Her pain became his means of salvation. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians. For the world to live, I have to suffer to bring them salvation. See, John Piper says that at any moment in your life, at any moment, God is doing about 10,000 things in your life. You're only aware of about three of them. God is using your pain. He is using your suffering. He is using your disappointment to point other people to him. But we have a responsibility. You know, this girl did. She didn't get angry. She forgave and looked for a way to serve God and other people, even in a terrible situation. Here's the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. Are we willing to take on suffering so other people can come to Christ? That's what we have to ask ourselves. If you're a Christian, are you willing to become a suffering servant for the eternity of others? 
Are we willing to allow our suffering to bring other people to God? Are we, allow, are we able to allow our suffering to bring us closer to God? Or are you going to let it, that suffering drive you away from him? So if you're not a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you willing to humble yourself in your suffering to see that God is seeking you? Are you humble enough to come to Jesus? Humility is admitting that you have no hope but him. Faith is believing that he will save you if you reach out and receive his gift of grace and his gift of salvation. Every one of us here this morning have a choice. The believers, we have to choose to allow our suffering to bring us closer to God and allow our suffering to bring others to God. And those who are believers, you have to make a choice. Are you going to reject his gift of salvation, reject his invitation for a cure for your sin? Or are we going to humbly come to him and say, God, I can't do it. I accept your gift of salvation. It's a choice we have this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.